That one's not in the book, is it, Brother Bob? Is the invitation song in the book? 988, thank you. I'm the only one that needs it. Everybody else can see the screen behind me, so I'll go ahead and turn there. It's great to be with you again. Uh, It's strange. After uh, nearly a lifetime of uh, getting up and speaking publicly, um, uh, I'm still nervous. Uh, I remember when I was 10 and my dad put me in front of a large crowd and uh, I was shaking my boots. And it hasn't changed, but it's particularly that much when... uh, you're talking to your own home crowd. Uh, this morning in class, we were in Mark chapter 6, and Jesus returns to his hometown, and they nearly threw him off a cliff. And I think that's what promotes me, promotes in me the fear when I come home, and I have just done that again. I was gone on the road for uh, another 10 days or something like that. Glad to be home again, and uh, it's a joy to be with you. If you're visiting tonight, we extend our invitation. I did get a note from Brother Hatcher. Let's see, I'm going to celebrate 37 years of uh, my wedding anniversary. Um, how many of you can beat 37? Well, Brother Russell can, yeah. Brother Russell can. Was that 51? Is that right? 51? And the Hatchers tomorrow? 59. Is that correct? All right, I feel like we should break out onto applause or something like that, but that's fantastic. That's wonderful. And uh, great to be with you. Again, celebrate that. Bring you the greetings of, let's see, Wednesday before last, Prattville, not too far away. And uh, then last Sunday in Finger, Tennessee. And this last Wednesday night, uh, let me think, Northport, Alabama. Never been there before, just uh, north of Tuscaloosa. But I bring you the greetings from those brothers and sisters in Christ that are there. I've been told that I speak too fast. I've been told that my lessons go always too long because I try to cram too much in them. So tonight, I'm going to be deliberate and I'm going to be short. Maybe. (laughs) What are you going to do if I don't? I shared a few thoughts on this. I think at an invitation a year or two ago, I'm taking advantage of the opportunity to revisit and expand some of these thoughts, but uh, I've had missions on my mind because of spending four and a half months of the last six and a half on the mission field, which is not just abroad, but in particular to my life, since I'm a son of a missionary and a vocational missionary, then uh, a return to the mission field where I was brought up is always very meaningful. And that means Italy, and it means Greece, and it also means, uh, uh, even though I didn't work there personally, return to Nazareth. I was just there this past spring with a study abroad group, and uh, I was thinking of it from the perspective briefly as, as those Jews and Palestinians that live in that country. They're surrounded by enemies. They're surrounded. So if you're sitting not in Montgomery, Alabama, But if you're sitting in Nazareth tonight, on this Sunday night, and whether you're a Palestinian or you're a Jew, whether you're a Muslim or Orthodox Jew or a Christian or nothing, you're surrounded by people that have vowed your destruction, which is kind of the context of the Old Testament character book 
that I'm asking you to revisit, whose story you already know, so I'm not going to tell it. I'm going to suppose that you know it already. And it's the story of a reluctant missionary. I fear that sometimes, in spite of all that we know, that we need a continual reminder that we have a job to do, that it's urgent, and that we cannot afford to lapse into the reluctant missionary role, which an Old Testament prophet fulfilled well and his story is told in the book of Jonah. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 says this, and it gives me authority and authorization to go back to the Old Testament and relive the story. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So there it is. I want to ask you with me to mentally revisit the story that you well know with three major characters in it and maybe, of course, more than that as you think about the story yourself. The fish, the prophet, and of course there is God. There are, of course, two, if you want to continue the list, the Assyrians... There is a a plant, a vine. In those short four chapters, if you don't remember all the details, please read them again tonight or tomorrow or whenever you can. To revisit, as the Apostle Paul told us in Romans, a story that's there for our instruction. Whatever was written in former days is for your instruction. With a group of believers, I was in the catacombs again in the middle of June, the underground cemeteries of early Christians, and I uh, was again was brought to tell them that that story, Jonah, seems to be the predominant theme story told by those early Christians in the capital of Rome because it's plastered all over their cemeteries, their walls, as the central major story that they told. And, of course, it's obvious. There's the number three. There's a resurrection from the depths of the sea. There are so many parallels between this story and the story of Christ. So there he is, Jonah being thrown out by those pagan sailors who pray to their gods in the middle of a storm, no, they don't have a chance to make it. Unless they find out who brought on the anger of whatever god. And Jonah sheepishly raises his hand, volunteers, and they apologize as they throw him overboard, and there is the fish about to swallow him. A whale, fish, There is no contradiction between the Old Testament and the New. On this, the word in the Hebrew and the Greek just means a big, big creature of the water. And those who try to make a big deal of that lose again on linguistic matters. But there it is. The story as told on a wall by your early Christian forebearers. 
This is important. This story means something to us. It's who we are, and it's what we do. And it's a story that takes place for real. You already know that Christ mentions it in Matthew chapter 12 in one of his lessons. And Christ only has to mention it once for it to be not mythology, but a story that's real and you can count on it. You don't need to find out from scientists that a man can survive three days in the belly of a fish. You don't even need to read the accounts of men that accidentally spent time in the belly of a fish. The last one to do that was in the late 1890s. You can look those stories up. It doesn't matter. Jesus made it real when he quoted both the existence of and the details of the story, in a sense, are implied by the fact that the Son of God said, it happened. Now, you either take that or you don't. There's a real geography, too. God calls, says, I need you to go do a job, and uh, I can't imagine the difficulty. Here are the times. The map behind you is where Jonah uh, ends up going. But the map in the middle in between has the little pictures of the western side of the Mediterranean, which is where Spain is. That's where he thinks he's going to run away from God to a place called Tarshish, 2,000 miles away and nearly two months by sea across the Mediterranean. He's never going to make it on that cruise. That's the wrong cruise boat to take. Because God says, I don't think so. I have a job for you. I need you to be my spokesman. I need you to be my missionary. And reluctancy is not an option. I'm not the one. I don't think so. I don't want to do the job. I don't like the Assyrians. They have vowed to destroy us. And they are enemies. And they're all pagans. That's not an option. Here is the historical context, and while I overdo it with historical context, I'm only going to spend a minute and move on. The prophet Jonah lived in the Galilean city of Gath-Hefer, that was about four miles north of Nazareth, in the reign of a Jewish king of the northern tribes, Jeroboam II. The years are about the beginning of the 8th century before Christ. He is king of Israel. You'll find his story in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 20, 25. He was northern Israel's most powerful king, Jeroboam II. And during his administration, the borders of the nation expanded to the greatest extent. But the problem was, there was, had been developing for centuries, ever since the 13th century before Christ, and you're now in the beginning of the 8th, there is Assyria, a massive nation. It's as if we said they got the nuke and they've had it and know how to deliver it. That's the Assyrians. They are bad guys. They are not just pagans. They use ruthlessness as a uh, political method to absolutely scare the living daylights and just absolutely destroy, decapitate even those that they conquer. Ruthlessness. That's who they are. They are only... 500 miles to the northeast of where uh, Jonah is. They're a constant threat. And the fact of the matter is that God has already told through two of his prophets, Hosea and Amos, listen, unless you change, he has told the Israelites, unless you change your ways, I'm going to let these really, really bad guys come and let them do stuff to you. 
You need to change. You need to repent. That's the background of what we see here now. You can, therefore, maybe begin to understand the consternation that's in Jonah and in his heart when he receives the Lord's message. I want you to go to the number one top enemy of your country and of you as a person. I want you to go to them. That's your mission. That's where I want you to go. Reluctant. That's too soft a word for what Jonah must have felt inside. No way. Let's say it for him. No. This can't be. It can't be the will of God to go the absolute number one enemy that has vowed my destruction and is going to bring it down with his chariots and his policies. No, that can't be the right. And yet this is exactly, exactly the story. This is the setting, the historical setting of what's going to happen here. So, what I'm going to do in the 12 minutes that I have left is simply do the following. Take a sermon that was done, I think, 50 years ago. His name was J. Lester McGee. And it does have the old-fashioned three points. But instead of telling you what they are and then telling you the three points and then summarizing at the end, I'm going to use a little bit of an inductive method, which is I'm going to start phrases and I'm not going to finish them because you're smart and you're intelligent. And if you came to listen, then you can finish it for yourself. You make the lesson. Let's try that. When a thing is done, the reasons for its doing may be found in the temperament, in the character, and the disposition of the doer. So to take advantage of the 12 minutes I have, let's not focus on everybody in the story. Let's focus only on three. It was like the fish to act as the fish did. It was like Jonah to act as he did. It was and is like God to act as he did. Start with the fish. He followed the ship and he swallowed everything tossed overboard. That's what fish do. It's absence of discrimination. It's gullibility. It's undisciplined choices. A shark doesn't have choices. Just yesterday, there was a race in Australia. Two finalists, they were on riding the waves, and a major fin showed up behind he immediately realized what was about to happen. He dove off of his board. You can read it in the news. And he began swimming and looking behind. And to his tragic realization, he saw the fin was following him. And so he turned around and just leveled the heaviest punch he could do. And he actually hit him on the dorsal fin. And then the guys with the ski jets arrived. And he did not lose a leg or a life. 
And you can look him up, but he's very grateful. And they didn't finish the race. They said, both guys win. Because there's no discrimination on the part of a shark. And the stories this summer of those that have lost limbs to those creatures of the sea whose job is only to, uh, as Jaws put it, uh, uh, eat and make babies, uh, then uh, no discrimination, no gullibility, scrambled values. They don't have values. To eat is not a value. But that's the difference. That's the difference. Uh, When you see a person, whether they are an adult, that's quite tragic. But even a a teenager that acts without understanding that choices must be made when you're 13 or 18, and definitely when you're 28 or 38 or beyond that. When you surrender the ability to say, "This this is good, this is not, this is right, this is wrong, and you're no better than a fish. See, there's no spiritual realm for the the whale or the fish. It doesn't live in that world, but we do. And that's what we're supposed to understand as well. He may be a pawn in the story as God uses the natural inclinations of a big fish or a shark to swallow anything that gets tossed overboard. We are not that way, and we must stop swallowing stuff that come from our culture. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. This is not a compliment. This is not a compliment that the Hebrew writer is making to the readers. And tragically, I think sometimes it might be addressed to us today too when we swallow things that we should not be swallowing Hebrews 13 verse 9 do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed about by the wind In Ephesians 4 and verse 14 and 15, you know this passage well. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Well, the... fish swallowed Jonah and Jonah made the fish kind of sick that's not in the story but you could take that kind of from the story and three days later people let me extract this humorous point from this people who act indiscriminately towards the important choices to be made in life make whales sick (laughs) that's not in the text that's just a freebie If not by the grace of God, if taken as we are, we are truly undigestible morsels of food. We are not worthy. By the grace of God only are we worthy. And so, 
Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2 says, this is what you should practice so that you will be a worthy person. Humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. Pursuing unity of the spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is what we're supposed to be doing that makes us different from a fish. It was like the fish to do as he did, and it was like Jonah to do as he did, because he allowed himself to act in a certain way. The real drama is not inside the fish. It's inside Jonah. The real drama is not really going on outside of us. It's going inside of you and me when we... Don't listen to God. Don't let him draw up the plans for our living and our life. But we try to run ourselves. And that's the tragedy. When we talk back to God, when we take exception, when we say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that way. When we talk back to God. It was like Jonah to act because he had a certain attitude. And are you sure that I am not Like Jonah, are you sure that we're better? Are we sure? So if you're going to run from God, if that's what you're going to try to do, which is what he did, then you need to put out to sea. You need to put out to sea. And you need to leave dry land. You need to leave what's stable. You need to quit coming to church. You need to quit reading the Bible. You need to quit associating associating with Christian friends. You need to put out to sea. That's what you need to do. That's how you do it. When you run from God, that's how you do it. Leave things that count. Leave things that are substantial. You don't worry about things that are eternal. And you take off towards the sea. So that's how you do it. What's ironic is that he will find God's presence even at the bottom of the sea. God never abandons us, even as we uh, take a boat towards Spain and then dive or are thrown into the bottom of the Mediterranean and, and live in the belly of a fish. God is still there. We abandon God. God doesn't abandon us. God has to turn our back on us when we blaspheme him and we we can paint ourselves into a corner. And it says to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to put yourself in a corner where you can't find God anymore. But God doesn't abandon us. He doesn't abandon Jonah. Jonah goes to sleep in in the... Valley of the will. That's another thing we try to do. We try to put ourselves, when we leave God, in a state of insensitivity. We go into a spiritual slumber, so to speak. Something, um, some things can happen, and we don't even know that they're important and they're vital to our well-being because we simply are, are kind of like calloused. We don't feel anymore. We can go there. We can become that way, calloused to how others feel, callous to what's happening to the church, callous to the over, our overall impact in this life and whether we are making a difference and making this world better and leaving it a better place when we're gone. You see, when we sleep, there's no sense of transposition. There's no sense of transition. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going on. Jonah goes to sleep in the belly of the whale, so to speak, and that is a remarkable way to run from God. You simply become 
insulated from what's going on. But the storms will always be there. Storms. And that's what's going to happen. Is a storm. That's in chapter 2. Excuse me, at the end of chapter 1. And the storm always comes. It will seem to us sometimes that people out there, especially those that live uh, a life in the public sphere that is replete with money and power, that they don't have storms. But the recovery centers from addictions and, 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 and suicide stories and, and uh, the stories of, of the, the internal stories of the great and powerful that seem to ride the waves of life with, with uh, ease, they will tell you differently. Very differently. Storms are part of the life, part of living. They're part of a fallen world. They're part of who we are. And that's part of life as well. The storms will always be there. They always come. They wake us up from our sleep. Storms are sent by God to wake us up. James 1, say this. Let me uh, read it. I have skipped a few verses here. Well, I didn't put it up. Sorry. I'll have to... Get there with my PowerPoint in a minute. But panic and desperation and prayer, like you find in Jonah chapter 2. Let me read that, Jonah chapter 2. Here it is. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Excuse me. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me down in the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. It was like God to act as he did because he is God. He loves us. He loves you. No matter where you are tonight in your spiritual walk, He loves you so much that he sent his son just for you. He is God. He doesn't change. He acts as God with Jonah in the 8th century before Christ. And he acts as the same God with you and I in the 21st century. He will allow storms to brew to bring me back home. God moves in mysterious ways that it's not just to him. We can't always see the people and the events that he brings into our life, but he does that. I believe he does still. He operates in that way. Misfortunes and maladies, blessings and great joys and great opportunities, all of them are there. He ordains fish and people To come into our lives. He ordains the vine in the story of Jonah. And a worm as well. God is patient. God is loving. God is understanding. If you read especially chapter 4. You will see that. When surprisingly the bad guys repent. You do know that's how it goes. 
Nineveh repents. It's a brief blip in the story of ruthlessness of Nineveh. But there's a brief moment in which even the really, really bad guys can be reached with that message of change. Or in 40 days, destruction will be had. Because God is sovereign of Nineveh. And he still is sovereign of the United States, Iran, and any other country in this world. And his son is going to return and there will be a judgment day. And that's the truth as it was back then. Jonah got upset because he didn't want the bad guys to repent. Surely we are not that way. Surely we are not both reluctant and then unhappy when the powerful message of salvation of God actually pricks the hearts of those that were our declared enemy. Politically speaking, but are still children of God if they will just listen to the message. So, how much of Jonah's left in me? How much of Jonah is in you? Are you trying to wait the Lord out tonight? What are you waiting for? A young man asked me this week, Do you think deathbed conversions are possible? Of course, Shakespeare made a big play in that. It's called Hamlet. <laughs> and it discusses that very issue. Can I live my life the way I want to? And then right before, you know, deathbed conversions. I said, theoretically it's possible, but that's a very dangerous game to get in with God. God will not be mocked. God is not a fool. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to wait the Lord out? Really? That can't be done. We have received a call, the same one as Jonah, go to the Assyrians. I don't understand. I don't want to. That doesn't matter. You're all missionaries. We're all missionaries. We need to go. We need to do what we can. It's either here in Montgomery or it's in some foreign land. Either way, we've got the call. Are we reluctant? Are we arguing with God? Are we catching the nearest ship to Tarshish. We cannot run from God. So I take you to this final passage. Yeah, I therefore, says Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you. And here's the invitation to me and to you. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, I remember the story of Jonah I remember my mission, and I listen to the urging of Paul that says, do what you've been called to do. The invitation is for you. Would you come as we stand and sing?